Hello, you're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interference Archive is a social space, exhibition venue, and open sex archive of social movement material. Our work is rooted in the belief that our shared history should be held in common and accessible to all. The following is a recording of an event titled We the People Won't Go, Lower East Side Artists on the Squatting Movement. The event occurred at the Archive in December of 2019. This event was part of the exhibition on homesteading and cooperative housing put on by the Archive in collaboration with UHAB that was up at the Archive from October 2019 to February 2020. Amy Starczewski, author of Ours to Lose, an oral history of the squatting, homesteading, and cooperative housing movement on the Lower East Side, moderates a conversation with Seth Tabachman, Fly, and Maggie Wrigley, three artists and activists who were and are a part of this movement. Amy gives them a fine introduction in the recording, so I won't do that here, but I will say that each artist had a wonderful slideshow with photos of their work to accompany the talk. The audio is edited, so it makes sense for folks without the visual, and I really recommend you check these folks' work out. We will link to more information in our show notes. And now, here's Amy. Pretty much always been a part of how all cities everywhere have worked. It's always been a part of New York City. Um, squatters filled Central Park before it was Central Park. They developed areas that were swamps and edges of the city and hills and all of the places where um, the land wasn't fully propertized. Um, but the squatting that we're going to hear about tonight is something really special in particular that happened on the Lower East Side in the 1980s and 90s and continues um, as a group of people and a movement into the present. Um, so as many of you might know, um, in the 1970s and 80s, um, racist public policies like redlining, spatial deconcentration, and changes in the economy led to capital fleeing out of New York City's uh, neighborhoods especially neighborhoods that were predominantly black and brown. White people also fled those neighborhoods. So there was an explosion of abandoned buildings, which then quickly became city-owned when the landlords didn't pay taxes on them. And so squatting grew up around this in a number of different ways. It first kind of started um, on the Upper West Side in an area that was slated for urban renewal, where the people had been moved out of a bunch of buildings, um, had been promised that they would get housing there, um, but didn't believe those promises, very rightly, um, and so started occupying those buildings. And so um, that was a, a campaign that was affiliated with the Young Lords, um, and there was a, a really successful campaign to occupy these buildings as a form of protest, not necessarily with the expectation of actually getting to live in them or keep that those specific people would keep those specific buildings, but to sort of dramatize the fact that there were these empty buildings at the same time as people were needing housing. Um, and then this spread into a really grassroots movement where people all over the city started taking over vacant city-owned buildings, um, sometimes with the intention of fixing them up and living, them, living in them, and sometimes as a form of protest. Uh, the city responded to this by creating urban homesteading programs. This happened in New York City and in other cities around the country. It became a city and also a federal program um, where low or moderate income people could apply to officially get the chance to renovate a building that was empty 
and then own it uh, as a limited equity low-income co-op, meaning that there were limits on how much people could earn uh, if they wanted to live in those buildings. There were limits on how much you could sell the units for, but that people would own the housing that they had worked on, and they called it sweat equity, the idea of building rights to property, not by investing capital, but by investing your time and energy. And so... Um, this was a program that sounded really exciting, that was a response to all of this grassroots organizing that was happening, but it didn't, wasn't available at a scale that could in any way fill all of the buildings that were available. It had a lot of bureaucratic red tape around it. Um, most prominently um, in East New York, uh, ACORN, a community organizing group, organized local residents to squat a bunch of city-owned buildings in protest of the fact that this homesteading program wasn't really working. And so this is a campaign that led to uh, the creation of a mutual housing association um, that led to the creation of a good amount of affordable housing, um, but where once again squatting was really being used as a protest tactic, not as a way for people to actually produce their own homes. On the Lower East Side, it was something different. The Lower East Side squatters were not organized by a group like ACORN. There was no community organizer kind of centrally coordinating this. It happened um, more, um, more organically, I would say. And squatters in the Lower East Side, this is a map that Fly drew, by, example, uh, by the way, um, were um, drawing on a number of different influences, including urban homesteading and Latino-led anti-displacement organizing, but also DIY punk and European squatting. And in Europe, squatters at this time were operating mostly in socialist or social democratic contexts where they could assume that the government had a responsibility to provide them housing, and also where they could fight the police in the streets because the police weren't as heavily armed as they were here, and actually expect that they might win. And so partially through interactions with European squatters, Lower East Side squatters, uh, sort of had the idea that if they physically fought for their buildings, they might be able to keep them, that you could fight the NYPD and win. And so they used things like an eviction watch list, which is basically a phone tree to bring out big groups of people when there's an eviction. Um, and they used direct action. This is the eviction of Dos Blocos in 1999, which was the last sort of physically contested squat eviction on the Lower East Side. Um, and they created drama doing this. Tanks, helicopters, confrontations with the police that lasted for months, even years. Police and the city realized that they would not be able to evict these people. And even though the city had been demonizing squatters, particularly Lower East Side squatters, for decades they made a deal. So the city no longer wanted to be the landlord of last resort. They really wanted to get rid of these buildings. They could not sell them to anyone with squatters in them if the city themselves weren't able to evict them. Um, so they sold the buildings for $1 each to UHAB. And UHAB took out loans on the squatter's behalf to renovate the buildings, bring them up to code, and turn them into HDFC co-ops. This was a complicated process because not everyone who lived in these buildings wanted to become cooperative homeowners. It wasn't like an acorn campaign where there were specific goals in mind. People had different needs, different ideas about property. Some people, this was the culmination of everything they'd been working for. And for some people, this was really not something that they wanted, but seemed like the best option. And there were some people who didn't want to do this at all and left and were pushed out. So I think I'm going to leave it there. I think that gives enough context for you all to understand what our speakers are talking about. And I'm going to introduce Seth Tabachman, who's going to be our first speaker. When people ask me what they should read about squatting on the Lower East Side, I always direct them to Seth's work. 
first, partially because it does a really amazing job of being real about the challenges of these uh, of these experiences, but also being really inspiring. Um, and I think being an excellent example of how critical accounts of social movements can help us to organize better in the future. So reading about the things that squatters faced um, in Seth's books helps me in any kind of organizing context to be like, oh, this has happened before, right? This is how people dealt with it in the past. And so I find them really useful, um, not just as documents, but as sort of something to really actively learn from. So Seth is a comic book artist whose work often deals with political issues from a radical and independent point of view. He founded the magazine World War III Illustrated with Peter Cooper in 1979 and has been part of the editorial collective ever since. Uh, his work has appeared in the New York Times, The Village Voice, Heavy Metal, and many other magazines. He's author of a number of graphic novels, including You Don't Have to Fuck People Over to Survive, War in the Neighborhood, which is the book I was mentioning, Portraits of Israelis and Palestinians, Disaster and Resistance, Understanding the Crash, and Len, A Lawyer in History. Tabakman's art has been shown at the Museum of Modern Art, the New Museum of Contemporary Art, the Museum of the City of Ravenna, Exit Art, and ABC No Rio. His images have been used, and this is maybe the most powerful way I think that his work circulates, um, as posters, murals, banners, and tattoos by people's movements from squatters in New York's Lower East Side to the African National Conference in South Africa. So please join me in welcoming Seth Tabakman. Okay, so my name is Sesta Bachman, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the same history, some of the things that she covered in a lot more detail. And Seward Park is, of course, the name of, there's actually a park called Seward Park, but it's also a term used to refer to about a 14-block area below Delancey Street on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And up until the late 60s, this area was primarily tenement housing, primarily working class residents. And then in the late 1960s, it was demolished. After that, what was left there was a vacant lot. Tamara, you lived around there. You want to say what was there? Uh, yeah, I lived on Henry Street, and uh, I would walk up uh, Clinton Street, and there was a, a big vacant lot. And homeless people would build their own makeshift shelters out of trash and stuff that they found, old mattresses and tarps. And they were very creative about it. It was really kind of wonderful to me to see. But then the police would come and wreck them within a couple of days. And then they would come back and rebuild them again. It was eventually put there with parking lots. It was paved over and made into parking lots. It was kept empty. It was kept empty because Sheldon Silver, who was the state senator, one of the most important figures in the New York Democratic Party, that was his district. His last name was Silver, not Rodriguez. And he knew that if low-income housing were built in that space, if the people who'd been moved out were allowed to move back, it would probably be largely Hispanic and he wouldn't win an election. And so he managed to keep that area empty from the late 60s to about 2010. Okay? So the entire period we're talking about, there were 14 blocks of empty real estate in the Lower East Side. So whatever conflicts existed about the rest of the neighborhood, 14 blocks were kept empty, which is kind of an important detail, I think. So 
that was cleared in the late 60s and in the late 70s a lot more housing was lost primarily to fires usually lit by landlords who wanted to get out of owning those buildings they burned them down got the insurance money and those became owned by the city and this was not just happening in the Lower East Side this was happening in the Bronx this was happening in Brooklyn and this was happening in cities all over the United States gee this is kind of weird how is it that in the wealthiest country in the world the most powerful country in the world the inner cities look like there was just a war fought there and a woman young woman named Yolanda Ward was working with an organization called the Grassroots Unity Conference. And what the Grassroots Unity Conference was doing is they were squatting buildings all over the United States, primarily East Coast, Washington, D.C., Chicago. I don't know if they did anything in New York. But she was a young volunteer with this organization, and she got into her mind to um, do a Freedom of Information Act request from the, the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And they got a lot of documents from the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And she wrote a paper, which we've called the Spatial Deconcentration Papers. It's an attempt to explain why there was so much abandonment. And this is my summary of what she wrote. Uh, 1968, inner city riots. A commission was set up to study the riots. This commission consisted of representatives of the military, business, and government. The commission, the people on the commission, did not believe that poverty had caused the riots. They blamed the riots on the people. Crowded together in the inner city, poor people could communicate and organize and create resistance. Their solution was to break up this mass of people and drive them out of the cities. Already bad areas would be allowed to get worse. Police would turn a blind eye to drugs and arson. Then people would be offered money to move out. The area would be renovated for a better class of people. Rents would soar. People would have to sleep on the street while warehouse departments remained empty. By the mid-1980s, this had already resulted in a wave of homelessness. And I should say, perhaps someone else's memory is different. I think I first heard the word homeless in the 1980s. When I grew up, nobody referred to anyone as homeless. They might call you a bum, but nobody had a word for being homeless. So we ended this cartoon with the question of what people were going to do about it. And obviously what we were saying when we put this out was that we thought what people should do about it was to break into these city-owned abandoned buildings, which we did. What people did is they went into these buildings and they started fixing them up to make housing for themselves and maybe for their neighbors. And this was done without title or right, which is the dictionary definition of squatting. So we had a squatters movement on the Lower East Side. And that was a lot of fun for a while until the police moved in on it and started to chase people out of the park and evict people from the buildings. And evictions were a really interesting 
and disturbing, spectacular part of the squatters movement of the 1980s because when people are squatting, they basically try to keep a very low profile because what they're doing is illegal and if nobody noticed you, you succeeded, right? But then when there were evictions, all of a sudden, you know, there's media, there's people, there's all this activity and part of your resistance is you're making the city look bad in that situation, so we wanted media. Okay, what you see here are a bunch of white guys in our 20s and 30s. That's who you see on this. I think there was one woman in that crowd. Um, and that's who's going to stand on the fire escape and wait for the police to drag them out. Other people are going to feel more vulnerable, and they're not going to be there. So from looking at these pictures, you would assume that the squatters movement was a bunch of young white men and a bunch of punk rockers. Um, that's who you see in these pictures. You wouldn't see uh, Jorge Brandon, uh, Jorge Brandon, who used uh, the pen name El Coco Que Habla, is considered to be the father of the New Yorican School of Poets mm -hmm. in the Lower East Side. Um, he was quite an old man when he lived at 319 East 8th Street uh, and very much needed a lot of people's help to take care of him, but he was still a poet. He would recite his stuff on the street, but you would never see him, of course, stand on the fire escape and wait for the cops to drag him out. He was quite feeble, you know, so he was living there. Another artist who was evicted from 319 East A Street is Rosemary Walls, who was also a senior citizen at the time, and she painted in an Ashcan school realist style. Uh, she studied at the Art Students League, and her daughter later wrote a YA novel called The Glass Castle, which has been made into a movie. So again, you wouldn't see her in the newspaper either. Um, I did a lot of posters for the squatter movement. In fact, I got involved with squatters on the Lower East Side because they wanted me to do posters for their demonstrations. And then, and then once I was doing posters, they said, well, seeing as you're doing a poster for the demonstration, would you like to help us organize it? And, well, seeing as you're organizing this demonstration, don't you think you should have a space in one of the buildings? And so by, like, 1989, I had a space in one of the squats. Um, I never gave up my rent-stabilized apartment, which if I had done that, it would have made my landlord very happy. Uh, so I didn't think that was a good idea. And that was controversial. It's like, what do you do in having two spaces? And are you really a squatter? And, but I did work days on the building. I paid house dues, and I was arrested more than 10 times in actions defending the squats and defending the tents in the park. And in fact, the police broke my nose. And so after that experience, I felt I knew enough about this to write a graphic novel, which I produced, which is called War in the Neighborhood. And uh, I will read one chapter from War in the Neighborhood. Because they curfew our park, because they beat us, because they tear down our homes, because they make plans for our disappearance. We go to war with these cops. We go to war with these landlords. We go to war with these racists. We go to war with these fascists. We plant gardens in vacant lots. We set fires in intersections. We turn abandoned buildings into homes. We turn street corners into liberated zones. 
for a moment, for an hour, for a year, for a decade, a space opens up and we are in control. We the people seize control of public space, seize control of housing, seize control of those things that make up our lives. We legislate on park benches. We try the traders under streetlights. Every Latin, a king. Every squatter, a landlord. Everyone, for president. A democracy of blood and cement. A democracy of stolen scaffolding. A democracy of subterranean tunnels. A democracy swimming naked in the park. A democracy of flying bottles and fires in the night. The Communist Manifesto, naked except for a mask and a pair of docks, strides down the middle of Avenue A, heaving bricks through the windows of police cars. And these are the best moments of our lives. The moment passes. All the fires have been put out. We tore the walls down yesterday, but today we're busy building them back up. We lie about each other. We scheme against each other. We evict each other. We might even try to kill each other. We go to war with the people who live across the street. We go to war with the people who live upstairs. We go to war with the person who shares our bed. And we come face to face with this cop, which is us, with this landlord, which is us, with this racist, which is us, with this sexist, which is us, with this fascist, which is us. Is it any surprise we become the mirror image of our oppressor? Weren't we educated in their schools? Don't we consume their drugs? Aren't we the target of their advertising campaigns? Haven't some of us also been rehabilitated in their institutions? Aren't we the descendants of slaves and peasants and fugitives? Has any of us ever experienced equality? What then would we know about democracy? If we can look at an abandoned building and imagine it full of people, if we can look at a vacant lot and imagine a garden, then why can't we look at each other and imagine what we could become with time and work? It is a good thing to take up the struggle against oppression. It is also a good thing to make mistakes in that struggle and grow wise. How else would we come to know ourselves? Thank you. So Maggie Wrigley is one of the foremost historians of squatting in my mind. A little bit more formally, Maggie Wrigley was born in Brisbane, Australia, which you'll hear. Uh, she came to New York City in 1984. She tells stories with words, photos, debris, ink, artifacts, and the best of her memory. 
She's lived at Bullet Space on the Lower East Side since squatting there in 1987. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Maggie Wrigley. I've lived at Bullet Space since 1984, uh, 87, sorry. And I landed on the Lower East Side on 3rd Street. Uh, literally, our car, the axle broke when we pulled up outside Bullet Space on the, the day we were moving in. And it was like, you are here. And um, so I just moved where I moved to Bullet, where it was called the Six O'Clock Squat, because I was homeless and broke and had nowhere to go. And I found this scene that we made in 1989. It was our third year of living at Bullet Space. We were so thrilled that we'd made it three years. So we made a zine to celebrate and write a history of the building. And that's actually, I'm flabbergasted to say, 33 years ago. So I wanted to read a few things from this scene, which just kind of says what it was like in our <laughs> lives and what we were thinking and what we were fighting and why we were doing what we were doing and how we were trying to handle it. Uh, tens of thousands of people are homeless in New York in 1989 and the numbers are growing. 200,000 vacant apartments citywide, many on the Lower East Side. City is a landlord more devoted to destruction than the creation of homes. On January 30, 1986, 292 East 3rd Street was occupied. The start of the squat known as Six O'Clock and now known as Bullet. Six people moved into the building with no front door, no power, heat or water, and a roof leak flooding the, every floor. They moved in to make one, use of one of the many empty buildings, vacant in the face of the great need for housing and the city's inaction to help the homeless and displaced local people, against struggling just to survive and pay a landlord rent to make use of wasted, greedy city warehouse space. Fix the roof, put windows in. You know, if, if a building was boarded up, we needed windows so that uh, it would be considered safely habitable. So, you know, if we had a fire, the firemen would smash all the windows, but all these people would come and work with us and, and just put windows in by nightfall to make sure that the building couldn't be declared like a hazard. So they couldn't evict us if there was a fire and, and things got smashed. It was this incredible, like, thought that went around the community and how to help each other and make sure that people were able to stay safe in their homes. You know, we fought them in the courts. We fought them with all kinds of, you know, we'd always win in court because the guy would say, oh, I put notices on, on their doors. And we didn't have doors. We'd take a picture. We had no doors. They'd throw it out. And then they'd say, oh, I, I rang everybody's bell and to give them a notice. And we actually had a sign on the front of the building that said, whistle three times, no bell, you know. <laughs> so we took that sign to the court and they threw it out again, you know. So it's like we felt smarter than them. Like, I mean, we were smarter than them most of the time. And when there was a siege at Umbrella House, riot cops, there's barricades, there's mayhem, there's floodlights. And people are going in and out the back of the building to go have a shower and get some food. And then they'd come back and be out on the fire escape. Like, so it was like really just this incredible action. And so uh, I can read a, uh, a story or two from, from living at Bullet Space, which is how I do. I, I collect all this millions of stuff and I write stories. Um, so I guess I'll read you a, it's winter. I'll read you the winter story. Winter Wonderland, Lower East Side. It was mugging weather, freezing just before dawn, a little misty, and as I walked east through the alphabets, I knew I didn't want to meet anyone else who was out in the street at that time. 
I'd worked the night before, so I had all my money and my shoes saved five bucks, and I had a key poking out my fist in case I had to fight. Not that I'd have been much of a fighter, considering I'd spent the last few hours dancing, getting high, and drinking gut rot vodka at Save the Robots. But not even an acid trip could have matched the scene inside my front door. Glinting in the dawn light, the interior of our tenement house had turned into an ice sculpture. Every tread and banister of the staircase, all the walls and floors, every spoke on the wheels of the bicycles in the lobby, frozen. Icicles hung from the ceiling, urban stalactites. It was the most freakish, beautiful, otherworldly thing I'd ever seen. Gorgeous and terrible. Faintly from upstairs, I heard water running. And then my neighbor yelling. A pipe had burst in the night, not such an unlikely occurrence in our unheated squat. But the only people in the building were sleeping at the time, and so the water poured down three flights of stairs, who knows for how many hours, freezing over everything as it went, running into ceilings and light sockets and across hallways. The electrics in the building, pretty rough to begin with, shorted out in the flood. So when English Steve ran out of his apartment to investigate the sound of running water, he ran into darkness, slipped on the ice, and crash slid down a flight of stairs. Neck unbroken. He started hollering to rouse the building, and there we stood, vapor gusting with our breaths as we stared at the ice palace. So, you know, and just to say one of the things I'm, I'm really um, proudest about, um, about Bullet Space, is that John Farris, the great poet, um, was able to live with us. He stayed, um, when, even when we got legal, we all paid the necessary, you know, we took on his debts to make sure that he was able to stay. Um, when he died and we put his ashes in the garden, um, black, what are those things, hollyhocks grew. We never had black hollyhocks in our garden, ever. And uh, anyway, he, he was able to live with us and it was, it was important to our, our particular family at Bullet Space that, you know, John not be displaced, that, that we bring him along with us. And so, you know, for this poet that never had two sticks to, to rub together was, did some of the greatest work of his life that in those years that he lived with us. And he was able to leave his apartment to his grandson, who's a young jazz musician. And so it's this incredible gift that came out of the rubble and, and just, uh, you know, and carries forward. So, you know, it's, it's, it, we, we did some good work. Thanks. And now we're going to get to hear from Fly. She's been part of the squatter and activist community on the Lower East Side since the late 1980s. She's a visual artist, writer, musician, teacher, and archivist. In 1995, she kicked off her Lower East Side squatter archive called Unreal Estate with a squatter art show at ABC No Rio, celebrating the 15th anniversary of the real estate show, which in 1980 resulted in the founding of ABC No Rio. Uh, she credits Seth Tabachman, so we've got some generational influences here, founder of World War III Illustrated, with giving her the courage to start drawing comics. She has published her comics illustrations in writing in her own zines, starting in 1985, as well as countless other zines and publications. And her personal zine collection of over 2,000 items uh, was recently acquired by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. She's been teaching comics, art, zine making, 
animation and activist art at the Lower East Side Girls Club since 2014. And in 2015, she founded the annual Lower East Side Girls Club Comics Fest. She has also been presented with an Acker Award for Excellence within the Avant-Garde for her Peeps project, which we're going to hear a little bit about tonight. So please join me in welcoming Fly. So, yeah, like Jamie said, I've been squatting in the Lower East Side since the late 80s. My building is 209 East 7th Street. My building in 1990, March of 1990, it was already a squat, but this is what happened, three-alarm fire. So right after the fire, by December, the roof was being put back on. One thing that is an immediately evictable offense if you are squatting, if your building doesn't have a roof, you can't live there, <laughs> according to the fire department. That was their excuse for evicting a lot of squads. So we, you know, the first thing was to really get the roof done. So um, this is two of my squat mates, Michael Schenker here, and my downstairs neighbor, Carrie. And this is, we did from the sixth floor all the way down to um, the second floor. We had to redo so much brickwork. You had to replace all the beams. I don't know if you guys have ever done any beam work, but it's very precarious. Um, I did this <coughs> comic about my building. I called it Eyeball House. And called it Eyeball House because in these tenements, the, the walls are never plumb, you know, nothing's ever straight. You gotta eyeball it, you know, always gotta <laughs> just eyeball it. I learned how to do cement. That was the first thing I learned was doing brick masonry. Don't even get me started. I could talk all night about the different kinds of cement, how to mix it, what to use, you know. So I was just like a cement mixing machine. Now, the thing you gotta know about working in a building with no floors and you know, having to replace all the, the, the beams is that, you know, there's areas where there's no beams. And we would put like pieces of plywood so we'd have certain areas where we could stand comfortably and work, right? But then, you know, we, you had to be so uh, balanced and limber, you know, we'd be like tightrope walking on these, on these beams and like jumping from one to the other. It was, it, it was amazing, I can't, you know, you know, I couldn't do that now. I'm glad I did it then. Now, this is a true story of how I woke up one day at about 10 in the morning. I was walking out of the building. There's this scaffold blocking our entrance, and there's these guys building a scaffold in front of our building. I'm like, what the hell is this? And they're looking at me like I'm a ghost. Like, they were like, what? <laughs> like, I'm and so it was really kind of scary, you know, because they didn't know there was people living there. We didn't know what the fuck they were doing. They didn't really know what they were doing either. So we're looking at the papers. And the thing was, we had just taken down um, scaffold that we had had up in the front of the building to prevent stuff falling off the building and killing people, right? So, but it had gotten kind of rotten. So we had taken that down as a request from the uh, block association. The city basically saw that this building was a liability. And it wasn't what you call a demolition scaffold, which would be made out of wood. This one was nice uh, metal. It was a nice scaffold. We decided to keep it. Um, Max in my building immediately went out and dismantled all the light bulbs and electricals. 
uh, yeah, it's like going through all the papers, trying to, you know, figure out what the city's thinking, what's their angle, what's their agenda. So I stayed up all night for a week. Every single night I stayed up painting the mm -hmm. front of the scaffold to, you know, claim it for our building. This was also when there was a big drug supermarket on our, on our block. Some of, the, some of the guys who were lookouts were kind of hanging out with me, and that was their excuse for being out on the block, right, you know, while they were working. Um, one of the guys was like, held my ladder all night while he's like checking for police cars and doing his like yells, whatever. The signals, you know. This was like actually a real quote over here. Yo, that shit's fat. Yo, you could paint Michael Jordan. He wanted me to put Michael Jordan into my mural, right? And the other guy is like, Michael Jordan, you're crazy. He's like, I ask you, does it fit the theme? <laughs> <laughs> I love that, you know. Really seeing my vision, you know. Um, as well as like very, you know, uh, realistic political comics that depict true events that happen. I also like to uh, see the humor in our crusty punk squatter existence. And I started doing this comic called Zero Content. So Zero Content stars uh, a character called Stu Pitt. I did a, a, a lot of different uh, comic strips. It was a running series. Um, so that's Stu Pitt, and basically the, the whole series begins with him waking up on the, out on the street, and he had passed out from being like super drunk, and he realizes someone stole his mohawk, and he's really upset. <laughs> and then he's like, oh no, someone stole my brain too. <laughs> and he's like, this sucks, because if I don't have a brain, I can't get fucked up, so I need to find a brain. He ends up stealing a brain from a dog. The dog is really cool, he calls his dog 40. Then they end up getting a brain for 40 from a cop. It's a whole thing. Anyway, so you know, Stu Pitt comes to the Lower East Side and he gets involved in all this ridiculousness. And he just wants to get fucked up. He wants to bring society to its knees and just like, you know, and you know, everything's for the people and, and everyone should deserve free beer. And um, he's hanging out with this friend here, Marty Spance who is like the most political correct punk in the entire world. He doesn't go by DIY as a motto, he goes by D-I-M, which is do it myself. Um, so anyway, here they are, walking the streets. Stu wants to get fucked up. Marty Spence is taking him to this big eviction that's happening at Esperanza. This is all based on truth. It's ridiculous, but it's all based on truth. So, you know, they were locking the gates. You got to lock in, you got to lock down, or you go out. So he's like, um, you know, they, so everyone's like locking down in some way, right? So, yeah, he's like, you know, can you come along and do this with us? He's like, we'll definitely get beat up and arrested. Are you with us? <laughs> yeah, fuck yeah. Um, so, so then it's like, oh, my God, he sees his crush. So his crush is this girl named Spit who is like a hardcore squatter girl, right? So she's like, Stu, I'm going to lock you down. And he's like, yes, please. Um, so they lock, they lock down with the, with the U-locks, you know, the bike locks around their necks. And, and Stu has got the key to the lock around his neck. And she's like, idiot, make it disappear. You know, and he's just like, yeah. so smitten. He doesn't even know what she's talking about. He's just happy to be locked down with her. And so here comes the claw. Here comes the, you know, all the machines. This is going down. 
So then, you know, they start sawing the the U-lock to get it off of of Spit, and then uh, <laughs> and Stu's, you know, doing his usual ranting. Quit your job and join us, fucking pig. <laughs> uh, so, so then they put this like fire blanket, uh, this wet fire blanket over Spit, so that the sparks don't catch her on fire while they're sawing the U-lock off. Uh, and so then they're they're dealing with this guy, with Stu. So then, <laughs> then what happens is, hey, this bozo's got the key around his neck. So meanwhile, during all of this, Jerry the Peddler, who many of us know and love. Um, so Jerry, if you don't know him, this is a, a taste of Jerry. Jerry, like big motorcycle, leather jacket looking guy, he just takes these big chains and he just wraps them all around himself. And like, he had no lock. He just, like, he just wrapped himself up in chains, you know. And he just started yelling at the police. He's like, come and get me, pigs. Like, dare ya. You know, it's like they didn't touch him. They just stayed away from him. It's like, to, to the very end, it was hilarious. Um, so, uh, art imitates life. Art imitates life. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. The archive is collectively run and volunteer-powered, and we rely on donations to keep us up and running. To support what we do, go to interferencearchive.org and click on Donate. Thank you for listening.